Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. And we are back for episode number four of Looking Above. It's good to be with you today. I hope your day is going well, or in the next 30-ish minutes, it's going to be going better because you're going to take a few minutes to step aside from whatever you've been doing and looking around you and the circumstances of today. And we're going to take a few minutes and just look above and look at Jesus and see what he has to share for us today. We are looking at John chapters 7 and 8. If you've got your Bible, you might want to open it. If you've got a notebook, you might want to grab a pencil so you can jot down a few thoughts. But let's just dive right into John chapter 7. At the beginning of this chapter, we see Jesus with his brothers. These are his actual physical blood relative brothers. It says at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus traveled around Galilee, but he wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. This was the feast of ingathering, and it happened in around mid-October at the end of the agricultural year. It was a full week of celebration, and people came together, and they lived in booths or shelters that were made of branches and leaves. And so Jesus' brothers um, went to head up to Judea to go to this celebration, and They come to him and say, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Now, part of this um, comes from the belief that the Messiah would make himself known publicly. But clearly, his brothers just don't understand at all. Um, Verse 5 says, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. So they're thinking, you know, everyone that matters is going to be in Jerusalem for this festival. And it's time for you to go and show them. Like, if you are who you're claiming to be, brother, then you need to go and show yourself. They were looking around. They were clearly not looking above. They're almost saying this in a taunting way. You can just hear it as brothers. Like, you can't become famous if you keep hiding. If you can actually do these things, then you need to go show everybody. And so um, just true brother fashion, right? (laughs) They're looking around. They're looking at other people. And they're saying, if you're going to make these claims, Jesus, you need to substantiate it. You need to show other people who you say you are. And make yourself known publicly. They were looking around. They were looking for the approval of man. But Jesus, who is always looking above, replies and he says, now is not the right time for me to go. He always does the Father's will. 
He goes on and he says, the world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. So Jesus stays in Galilee. Now that he says to his brothers, the world does not hate you. At this point, his brothers belonged to the world. And so the world didn't hate them. They looked just like the world and others around them. But Jesus does the Father's will. He looks different. He says that the world hates him because he accuses it of doing evil. And I just want to pause here for a moment because I think that a lot of times churches, church people, people who call themselves Christians get it wrong. And they believe that they are to be the accusers of the world. And that's not our job. That's Jesus's job. Jesus is the judge. We are not to judge the world, especially those who are outside of the church. It's not our job to point fingers at people who are living by a different rule book than us and say, you're doing it wrong. Jesus is the judge. However, our lives can look different and our lives can be an accusation. So when people see us, they see the light and the light exposes the darkness in them. So as Christians, one of the ways we can look above is to look at Jesus and how he lived, live like that so that our lives are light in the world. We see in this next uh, section that his brothers leave and go to um, go to the festival. But Jesus goes shortly thereafter, but it says he goes secretly. He didn't go publicly like his brothers wanted. He only went when his father told him to go. It was on the father's timing. But he goes quietly because, of course, the Jewish leaders are looking to find ways to accuse him so they can kill him. Verse 14 says, midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. So he comes in quietly. He doesn't show himself until halfway through this week. And then he goes and just shows up at the temple and starts teaching. It wasn't yet time for the triumphal entry. It wasn't yet time for um, kind of the climax of his ministry where he was going to be taken to the cross. So he doesn't come in with trumpets blaring. He just shows up at the temple and starts talking. Verse 15, the people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. Jesus hadn't gone to rabbi school. What they saw him as was an uneducated carpenter because his earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter. Only in this time, only the disciples of an accredited teacher were allowed to talk about the law and explain scripture. And so the people were confused and surprised that here's this man who's uneducated. He hasn't gone to rabbi school. He hasn't sat under um, appropriate teaching. And yet he is just exposing the scriptures to us. And so Jesus claims to be God. He tells them his message is not his own, but it belongs to God who sent me. Verse 17, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory for themselves, but a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. And this theme of truth and lying is going to continue on through the next many verses here and into chapter 8. But Jesus is telling them that 
only the man who does God's will can understand God's teaching. This is I'm talking about verse 17 here. It's an attitude of heart. So the readiness of our heart will recognize Jesus's teaching as truth from God. And again, in verse 18, he's just reiterating what he's said before, what we've seen before, that Jesus's entire and whole desire is that God receives glory. This is Jesus. He is God. And yet he's living not for himself, but to glorify the Father. How much more do we need to do that? So often we get caught up in receiving glory, speaking for our own glory, doing things for our own glory, trying to get the like, trying to get the attention, the pat on the back, whatever. Jesus's entire life was driven by this desire that God get glory, not himself. He continues talking to them and he talks about um, down in verse 21, how he did a miracle on the Sabbath. That was the healing at the pool that we talked about last time. And he's talking to them about how they just don't get it, you know, and they elevate certain laws and they diminish other laws and the Pharisees and the um, Sanhedrin and the teachers at this time have just kind of made their own um, hierarchy of laws. And he tells them, you know, you work on the Sabbath too. They were mad at him. The um, teachers were mad at him for having done this healing on the Sabbath. He says, you work on the Sabbath too. If it's time for your kid to get circumcised, you go ahead and do the circumcision on the Sabbath day. But that's also breaking the quote unquote in writing law or the laws that they had come up with of the Sabbath. And he says to them, you know, you're putting the circumcision law above the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law being one of the Ten Commandments, one of the laws given from God. The circumcision law, of course, coming from God, but coming through Moses. And so them thinking of this more as a Moses law. And he's saying, you know, you're, you're elevating one law above the other. But my action of healing someone was a very appropriate action for the Sabbath day. Verse 24, he says, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. When we look around us, we are so tempted to look at people's actions, look at their words, and pass judgment on them. And again, that is not our job. We're not meant to be judge over each other. That's God's job. That's Jesus's job is to judge and it says at the end of time he will be our judge the holy spirit is the one who convicts um but we look at people's actions right and we judge people's actions all the time it's what we do as humans but a different perspective the perspective of looking above what's normal and what's earthly is that judgment needs to penetrate beneath the surface we the judgment needs to occur according to the spirit and the purpose of the law. Jesus looks beneath the surface, beneath the actions, and he looks at the heart behind the actions. And his heart behind his action of healing was a heart of love. 
He wanted to do good and to do what the Father had asked him to do, which was heal this man. That's the heart beneath that action, and that's what's far more important than the action itself. In this next section, um, there's some debate and discussion about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, and he's um, kind of talking with the crowds in the temple about this, and people um, start to believe. People start to believe. In verse 31, it says, many among the crowds in the temple believed in him. And this is troubling to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, verse 32, when they heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they sent the they and the leading priests sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. So they're thinking now, if common people are believing that this man is the Messiah, then we need to take drastic measures to stop this because they did not believe he was the Messiah. And so they thought this is not okay. And we need to take drastic measures to stop this. I'm going to jump down to verse 37. We'll get back to that in just a minute. But verse 37, on the last day, the eighth day of the festival, the climax of the festival, this is when people thanked God for all the fruits of the last year. Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. In this little bit here, I'm just going to take this brief aside. He's talking about living water. So he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit that's going to come after his departure. But this little blurb here is in complete fulfillment of several prophecies from the Old Testament. And anyone who knew those scriptures should have recognized this. Of course, they didn't because their hearts were hard. Um, but I'll stick the references down in the notes to this episode so that you can look them up and just see how Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies from Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Zechariah. But what happens here is that Jesus is talking and people are believing him. The crowds, it says in verse 44, heard him and some of them think he's a prophet some of them believe that he's the Messiah. Some of them are just denying it because they know, um, you know, it says, for the scriptures state clearly the Messiah will be born in the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where the king was born. And what they didn't recognize is that he was born in Bethlehem, even though his family was from Galilee. So that's why they don't believe this. And he was a descendant of the line of David. But all the crowds are just having these different beliefs about him, but n no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, when the temple guards returned without having arrested him, and you remember we had just seen where the Pharisees and the leading priests sent the temple guard to arrest him. They come back without doing so. When they come back, the leading priests and Pharisees demand, why didn't you bring him in? Like, what's going on here, guys? And they say, we have never heard anyone speak like this. That's their testimony. They saw the word. Remember, we're just going to keep going back to that. John chapter 1, the word in action. 
They heard the word and it changed them. His words made such an impression on them that they couldn't possibly arrest him. So again, as we want to look above, we've got to just keep looking at the words of Jesus and what he's proclaiming about himself and who he is. The word changes us and the word changed them. And so the um, religious leaders are like, have you been led astray? Are you kidding us? They say, is there even a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? They're mocking the police officers and they're saying, you're just as deceived as this general common people. Look at us. We know so much more and none of us believe in him. Are you so foolish? That's what they're saying. And they're implying that none of them, in this question, they're implying that none of them believe in him. Then verse 50, we see Nicodemus, the one who met with Jesus earlier, who came under the cloak of darkness, who talked to Jesus about being born again. Nicodemus speaks up, probably with some hesitation because he doesn't want his peers to attack him. And he says, is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing? And his peers just turn on him. Are you from Galilee too? They just come right at him and show again their elitist attitude. Let's move on to John chapter 8. We see here the story of the woman caught in adultery, another story with Jesus interacting with a broken and hurting woman. It says that a crowd gathered around him and he sat down and he was teaching them. Verse 3, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. So here they think they're going to trap him with a difficult legal question. Verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Verse 6 says they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. Now, if Jesus said to stone her, he would lose his reputation of being someone of love and mercy and this name, the friend of sinners that he had gained. If he recommended death, he would come in collision with the Roman law because Jesus had no such power. That was the Romans' job was to um, accuse and to do these legal things and bring death. Verse 3, if he said to pardon her, then the Pharisees who were coming against him would say that he was breaking the law of Moses. So it was a very difficult situation that he found himself in. Verse 6 says, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, the typical word for um, writing is graphene. Graphene, I'm probably saying it wrong in um, the Greek. But what this word here used is katagraphene, which means to write down a record against someone. That kata um, prefix there adds that against. So it's possible, we don't know for sure what Jesus said, but many scholars believe that he stooped down and was writing possibly the sins of some of these leaders who had come, just writing down their sins, these accusations against them. 
They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up and said, okay, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote again in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, total aside, but the oldest one left first. There is wisdom that comes with age. So many of us, as we're young, think we know everything in our teen years, in our 20s. We think we're so wise. But says the oldest one left first. I encourage you, if you're not in relationship with someone older than you who serves as a mentor, get in relationship with someone older than you. They have a different perspective. They're often better at looking above the current situation, looking above what's going on. And they have some wisdom that you or I may not have. But at the end of this, Jesus is the only one who's left. The only one who stayed was the sinless one, the one who could accuse her. He doesn't condemn her. He's the one who could, but he doesn't. Instead, he gives her guidance. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. So the scribes and the Pharisees saw their authority as their right to criticize, judge, and condemn her. And that's why they brought her in front of Jesus. But Jesus saw his authority as an opportunity to redeem the sinner. So to apply this to our lives when we see someone who is struggling in sin, maybe it's best that we don't pass judgment like the older Pharisees who walked away first. Maybe it's best that we don't pass judgment because we too are sinners but maybe it's best that we try to understand why and that we try to reclaim the wrongdoer. We desire to be a physician like Jesus and to heal. In order to do that, we need to see the sinner as a person, not as a thing, not as the sin itself, but we need to see them as a person. Jesus saw this woman as a person who was broken and he looked at her and he said, go and sin no more. He tried to reclaim her. He saw this opportunity to redeem her. When we have someone who has sinned against us, who is sinning that we are in relationship with, maybe we need to not just look at the sin or their action, but maybe we need to look at their heart. Maybe we need to ask the question of why did this person fall to this temptation? What are the circumstances surrounding their sin? And then see them as someone in need of redemption, someone that we can reach out to and love back into the fold of Jesus. I'm going to jump way ahead here. I'm going to skip this next section, but I encourage you to read it, dig into it. There's a lot of, if you have a red letter Bible, a lot of red letters in this section, a lot of Jesus talking to people and telling them who he is, telling them that he is from above and that he doesn't belong to this world, telling them that um, they need to believe in who he is if they don't want to die in their sins. But I'm going to jump down to verse 31 in the section that's called Jesus and Abraham. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
this section here, this little bit is talking about discipleship. Discipleship is a way of life. You see that in this two verses. It has to be ongoing. You are a disciple if you remain faithful to my teachings. So those um, of us who are being discipled, who are disciples of Jesus, the first thing is that we need to believe, we need to have belief that Jesus speaks truth. That belief will then cause us to remain faithful to his teachings to remain faithful to his teachings. In order to do that, we need to listen to his teachings. So we need to be reading the word, listening to him. We need to learn from his teachings and we need to obey. We need to put them into action. That's how we remain faithful to his teachings. The third bit here, after we believe in him and after we remain faithful, it says, then you will know the truth. Then you will come to a better understanding of how God wants you to live. You will have a kingdom mindset. You won't be earthly focused. You won't be as focused on looking around and on seeing the world through world worldly eyes, but you will see the world through God's eyes. You will know the truth. And it says the truth will set you free. Step four, the result is freedom. And I want to just Step aside from my words here for a minute, and I want to read to you from William Barclay's um, The Gospel of John, Volume 2. It's called the Daily Study Bible Series. These are some commentaries written by uh, William Barclay. They're some of my favorites. I just love these commentaries. But in here, uh, Barclay talks about discipleship resulting in freedom, and I'm just going to read a little bit here. The truth will make you free. Discipleship brings us four freedoms. It brings us the freedom from fear. The man who is a disciple never again has to walk alone. He walks forever in the company of Jesus, and in that company, fear is gone. It brings freedom from self. Many a man fully recognizes that his greatest handicap and his greatest enemy is his own self. And many a man in despair cries out, I cannot change myself. I've tried, but it is impossible. The power and presence of Jesus can recreate a man or woman until he is altogether new. It brings freedom from other people. There are many whose lives are dominated by the fear of what other people may say. H.G. Wells once said that the voice of our neighbors sounds louder in our ears than the voice of God. The disciple is the man who has ceased to care what people say because he thinks only of what God says. It brings freedom from sin. There is many a man who has come to the stage when he sins, not because he wants to, but because he cannot help it. His sins, his habits, his self-indulgences, his weaknesses, his irritabilities have so mastered him that try as he will, he cannot break away from them. Discipleship breaks the chains which bind us to our sins and enables us to be the person we know we ought to be. Isn't that just amazing? I love that so much. It breaks us free from the freedom of fear. We're never alone. Jesus is with us. It breaks us free from self. Talking about the fact that so often we are our own worst enemy and we keep ourselves in bondage. It breaks us free from the fear of what other people 
think about us. I love that um, what he said about H.G. Wells and the voice of our neighbors sounds louder in our ears than the voice of God. We care so much about what people think. We look around us and we want, again, the praise of people or the acceptance of people. And we let that be so loud it drowns out the voice of God. And then it brings freedom from sin. Just talking about how sin can truly hold on to us. And that's what Jesus talks about here when we go on in verse 34. He says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Now he's talking about spiritual slavery here, right? So many times people say, oh, I'll live how I want. <laughs> I'll do whatever I want to do. But what we don't realize is that you're actually a slave to your habits, to yourself, to your indulgences, and to sin. But verse 36, if the sun sets you free, you are truly free. You are truly free. And that's echoing verse 32, where he told us that if we were his disciples, we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. And so I just love that, um, that little bit there that I read out of Barclay's commentary about the kind of freedom that comes. Now, they, of course, start arguing with Jesus again. They say their father is Abraham, and Jesus tells them, no, <laughs> if you were really the children of Abraham, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. You would believe who I am. Um, and I just want to mention here that this was what all Jews believed at this time. They believed that Abraham was their father, that Moses was their teacher, and that David was their king. So this is just common thinking when they're saying this, that Abraham is their father. Um, but Jesus wants to contrast um, between words and actions. They're saying that Abraham is their father, but they're not living like it. And so verse 41, he just ups the ante and calls them out and says, no, you are imitating your real father. <laughs> and he's saying, you're imitating the devil, the liar. And he goes on in this next passage, 42 to 45 here, you know, and he's just talking about Satan. He tells them, you are children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character. You remember the devil's first recorded utterance in the Bible was a lie. It was a direct contradiction of God's word. He said to Eve, you will not surely die if you eat this fruit. It was a, a contradiction of what they had been told by God himself. And so Jesus is telling these people, you aren't capable of accepting truth because you are related to the devil. You believe the lies. And the devil is all about lying to us. He is all about killing us and destroying us. And we're going to see that in a couple more chapters here. But he's saying, you believe what your father, the devil, says to you. So this is just really important for us to think about. Children reproduce their father's qualities. How are you living? Whose qualities are you reproducing? Do you look like the devil? Do you live deceptively? Do you live um, hating the truth? 
Do you live like your earthly father? Do you live like the heavenly father, God, who wants to adopt us into the family? If I jump back to verse 35, it says, a slave is not a member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So we can live as slaves or we can live as sons and daughters. We can look above and rise above what this world calls us to and live differently. I'm gonna just end today with a word of prayer. God, I thank you so much for sending your son to show us the truth, to show us who you are. I thank you for the words that are recorded here in the Gospel of John, and how we can just see you as we see your son. And God, how that convicts us to live differently, convicts us to live like Jesus did for your glory, not for our own glory, to live in such a way that our lives shine light the light of Christ, and that that light um, sometimes is in opposition to the darkness and sometimes is going to cause other people to come against us because they don't understand how we're living. But God, give us grace, give us mercy, give us love. Help us, Lord, to live as light. Help us, Lord, to live and walk in truth. Help us to understand the truth. And God, may the truth set us free. May the truth set us free from the bondage of sin and darkness in our lives. May your truth enable us to see the world differently, that we might not live as accusers, but we might live as lovers, that we might live as those who don't pick up rocks to stone others, but that we might live as those who call others into relationship with you, as others who see the darkness and have a heart for shining light in love, who have hearts that long to bring others to repentance that they might know you and be in better relationship with you. Lord, help us to look above what's going on. Help us to look to your son and help us to be more and more like him. In your name we pray, amen. Have a good week, ladies. Keep looking above. <laughs>